You're listening to a parish podcast, a reimagined faith community. The tale is told of a young boy who grows up in a little village on the side of a mountain. To the west, below them, lies a lush valley, and to the east is the steep crest of the mountain. All of his life, the boy has been told the story that a great giant lives on the mountain, and he's entranced by the thought. So he determines that he must find the giant. As a youngster, he makes short forays up into the wooded hillside, but does not find the giant. As he grows older, his eager searches go further up the mountain, but alas, they are no more productive. Finally, in despair, he decides he's been a fool to believe in the story of the giant and sets out to the east over the mountain to find his fortune. In the years that followed, he had many adventures and lots of interesting experiences, but nothing that ever stirred his soul the way the story of the great giant had. Yet he continued to travel east. Finally, it happened that in his old age, He had actually gone all the way around the world, and so his journey finally brought him back home. But this time, he was looking from the west side of the valley back at the mountain. And there he saw, unmistakably outlined on the mountain, the silhouette of a giant. He was only able to clearly see what was there right under his feet by leaving it behind and coming back from a different perspective. These last few weeks, we've been talking about the forces that seem to be at work in the present day that, for some of us, are making us rethink our faith. As Aaron talked about, the challenge may come from theological concepts that just no longer work for us. As God offers us, then, the new wine of fresh perspectives, we find the old wineskins just aren't able to contain it, and we need to find new ones. Some of our understanding of God and the life of faith will remain, but some of it will need to go. Then, in the last two weeks, we've talked about how external forces, the scandals, politicization, and commercialization of the church, have forced us to seek a different perspective. From Elijah, we learned the value of stepping back and seeing our current milieu, including the church with all its decline and dysfunction, within the context of God's grand, sweeping work of salvation. Elijah's big picture is reassuring for sure, but at another level, it may not offer much immediate comfort for those of us in the middle of challenging circumstances. It's great to know that God ultimately will triumph, but perhaps not as helpful as we'd like in our everyday struggles. Then we look at the perspective that Paul offered to the troubled church at Corinth, a perspective that called them to radical, to a radical and demanding path of love. Love even for those who felt like enemies. This call to love is sort of the opposite of the Elijah message. It can look great from the 20,000 foot level, but when we bring it down to the granular level of our day-to-day interactions with the people, sometimes difficult people who cross our path, it's just hard Today we're going to look at words given to another community on the brink of dramatic change, words that were meant to encourage people who were about to be forced to leave their homes and their theological structures. 
words of reassurance that they would in time come home and find that with new perspective and fresh grace, it was actually a new and better home. Jeremiah was one of the great prophets in the Old Testament. His ministry began during the reign of King Josiah, the last of the good kings of Judah. This would be about 150 years after Elijah was prophesying to the northern kingdom. King Josiah sought to bring the people back to the right worship of God and right treatment of neighbor. But while he managed to suppress overt worship of idols, the hearts of the people were not changed. After Josiah's death, Jeremiah continued to bring prophetic challenge against the four subsequent kings, all of whom were evil, right up to the fall of Judah and the people being carried off into Babylonian captivity. Jeremiah didn't mince words when he told both the rulers and the people that their ongoing idolatry and injustice were going to lead to disastrous consequences. But at the same time, he also sought to comfort them with the certainty of God's faithful love. And because of that love, the people would have a future and a hope. I want to focus in on a short passage from chapter 31 of his recorded words, where he talks about the time when God's people will return from exile. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from afar. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourself with your tambourines and go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountain of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit. This is a picture of returning to a home that's better than when you left it sort of like the boy on the mountain that we started with, but it also contains some insights about the journey that may be helpful for us. The first is that the grace that they need will come to them in the wilderness, not while they're still in Judea. It's in the metaphorical wilderness of Babylonian captivity that God will start to do the work of healing and changing their hearts. They must have been deeply discouraged. The destruction of the temple and their removal to Babylon must have felt like a disaster that even God could not bring them back from. But it wasn't. In the desert, in the wilderness of captivity, God brought grace to them. God nurtured a faithful remnant who would return to the land, rediscover the law, and rebuild the temple. Their return would usher in a period known as Second Temple Judaism, a period marked by eager anticipation of Messiah. All of that was possible because of the healing and growth that God brought about while they were in captivity. It's easy to read Jeremiah's rant about the sins of the people and assume that the Babylonian captivity was the punishment they deserved for those sins. But I'm not sure that is the whole story. I am more and more trying to read scripture through a Jesus lens, acknowledging that Jesus is the perfect revelation of the nature of God. So when I read something in scripture that is inconsistent with his character, I may need to rethink it. 
And when I read the Gospels, it's clear that setting up a law and order kingdom and punishing wrongdoers was just not Jesus' priority. For instance, when James and John suggest punishing an inhospitable Samaritan village, Jesus rebukes them. And when a crowd brings an adulterous woman to Jesus and asks him to endorse their stoning of her, which was what the law required, Jesus forgives her. God's aim is not to stamp out sin through a program of retributive justice, but equally God's plan is not to make us healthy and content. God wants to make us like Jesus. And for most of us, that involves more than a little bit of change. And it may take a little bit of disruption in our lives for us to be open to that change. We're wired up both physically and emotionally to resist change. On a physical level, for example, the body does not want changes in the blood sugar level. If the sugar level goes up, the pancreas and kidneys go to work to lower it. If it dips low, the liver jumps into action to make more sugar and raise it back up. The body refuses to tolerate a change in the blood sugar level, either going higher or lower. And our psychological state has the same drive to preserve the status quo Even if we aren't thrilled with our present circumstances, we're reluctant to embrace change. As the saying goes, better the devil I know than the one I don't. But despite our determination to avoid change, God is determined to make us like Jesus. And so God, out of deep love, allows a perturbation to disrupt us, to create the space for change. And with the perturbation, brings the grace we need to make the change. Jeremiah says the people who survived the sword found grace, not in a happy sunshiny garden, but in the wilderness, the place that the swords of the Babylonian army had driven them to. The contemporary church is also under a metaphorical sword, under attack from modernism, from materialism, from tribalism, and from a host of political forces. And, like the Judeans in exile, we can feel deeply discouraged. Over past centuries in the West, wasps, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, have enjoyed a great deal of privilege. But that privilege is now eroding. Well, at least the Christian part is. Sadly, white privilege still seems to have legs. Christendom had found power and prominence through collusion with empire, and that's ending too. But the church, the faithful body of Jesus' followers, will survive. And the people who survive the sword will find grace in the wilderness. We may dread that change, may hate to see lovely old church buildings turned into condos and watching the last vestiges of Christendom being stripped out of public life. We may fear that it somehow means God isn't as powerful as we thought. And we may fear becoming a minority, potentially even a despised minority in society. But God promises there will be grace in the wilderness. The exiles in Babylon were not only given grace, they found rest. Jeremiah says, When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. 
or in another translation, with unfailing love, I have drawn you to myself. The rest comes not from a lazy Sunday afternoon spent in a hammock under our favorite tree, but from an unshakable confidence in God's love. Jeremiah had seen Judah, the southern kingdom, at its worst under the rule of the four final kings. Yet he was convinced that all of that wickedness, all of that idolatry and injustice of the people who had abandoned Jehovah had not done one thing to weaken God's love for them. God loves them with an everlasting with an everlasting love, a love that exists in eternity and is not vulnerable to change. It's also an act of love. Jeremiah quotes God as saying, With unfailing love I have drawn you to myself. We can rest because God is actively working. If we thought it depended on us, we probably would be anxious and fearful, or alternatively controlling and annoying, But it doesn't depend on us. God is working to draw us into the kingdom life to make us like Jesus. Jeremiah goes on to assure them that God will be the active force in reestablishing them when they come back to the promised land. God says, again, I will build you and you shall be built. Jeremiah returns to this theme in the other Old Testament book credited to him, Lamentations. It's a well-named book because the whole thing is a doleful lament. He enumerates the wickedness of God's people and their current suffering. But right in the middle of the book, he catches a glimpse of the grace he promised the people will find in the wilderness. He writes, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The passage ends with a beautiful picture of the restored community, a foreshadowing of the kingdom of God. Again I will build you and you shall be built, and you shall adorn yourselves with your tambourines and go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again you shall plant vineyards on the mountain of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit. Joy, safety, music and dancing, fruitfulness and stability, but only found on the other side of the wilderness journey. The church that will emerge on the other side of the wilderness that we seem to be headed into may be more fruitful and beautiful than the one we know now. That won't happen because of our faithfulness and hard work, but because of God's faithfulness and great love for us. I started with the story of a boy who had to leave home to find home. It was adapted from G.K. Chesterton, who actually tells two versions of it, one with the round-the-world trip and another one where the boy just goes down the valley, crosses to the hill on the other side, and looking back from there, sees the giant. The churn in the church and in our world is bringing change for us. For some, that may involve a long journey, a journey in which they have to shed some of the baggage they have been carrying, a journey in which God heals and changes them and ultimately brings them home to the essence that was always there. For others of us, it may be more like the boy who just goes to the other side of the valley. In fact, it may not feel like we're journeying at all, rather like we're trying to hold our position, but the rug of Christendom is being yanked out from under us. 
You may be unsettled for a time in the face of unpleasant change, but there will be grace for us in the wilderness too. And like Jeremiah's travelers, we can rest confident, anticipating a joyous return to the house of God's love.